This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in with username and password, social and enterprise identity providers such as Facebook, Twitter, AD, or Office 365, or without passwords using Slack or WhatsApp. Getting started is very easy. Use one of more than 40 SDKs and add a few lines of code. No credit card required. Get the free plan at auth0.io slash seradio. That's A-U-T-H, the number zero, dot I-O slash seradio. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Optimizely, and Financial Times. Try it out at auth0.io slash seradio and get back time building core features. Hello, this is Matthew Farwell for Software Engineering Radio. Today's episode is about managing secrets with Armand Dagar. Armin is the CTO of HashiCorp, where he brings distributed systems to the world of DevOps tooling. He has worked on Nomad, Vault, Terraform, Console, and Surf at HashiCorp. Armin, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Thanks so much, Matthew, for having me. <laughs> As research for this episode, I was actually going through the back catalogue of Software Engineering Radio, and we've covered quite a few of the HashiCorp products in the past. For instance, uh, uh, episode 264, James Phillips on Service Discovery, which covered console, Episode 289, James Turnbull on Declarative Programming, which covered Terraform. And of course, in 2014, episode 207, with Mitchell Hashimoto on the Vagrant Project. So at least um, HashiCorp product seems to be popular, at least on this podcast. Today, we're going to talk about secrets management. So I think we'll need to start with a few definitions. So what is a secret? Sure, yeah, I think this is a... You know, I think the whole space around secret management is, is kind of a new and emerging set of definitions. And you know, the way we like to, to describe it is really, you know, let's be very clear about what we consider a piece of secret information versus what we consider sort of merely sensitive. And the, the kind of definitions we like to use is anything that, we, that can be used to authenticate or authorize is what we consider a secret. So just to make that concrete, a username and password is secret because I can use it to actually log into a system. And then similarly, if I have you know, an API token, I can use that to make a request to an API service and that token grants me the right level of authentication and authorization to make a request. And sort of then the, the kind of third category, something maybe like a, an SSL certificate or a TLS certificate where by presenting this uh, to another counterparty, I'm proving my identity uh, which then is allowing me to sort of be authenticated or authorized. And so those kind of things, anything that kind of is granting me access to a system or elevating my access to a system is what we consider a secret. So we're specifically, we're not talking about things like uh, key pass or password safe or one password. So those kind of systems will typically hold on to secret information as well. So if I'm using something like one password, it's holding on to you know usernames and passwords and API tokens um, as well, which are which are secret. The kind of space that we're in uh, is really more about how do we think about secret management for sort of our applications, 
So I have a web service that needs to talk to a database, or I have an API service that needs to talk to Amazon. And so a system like that won't be able to log into an interactive application like 1Password, right? So 1Password is really a lot more, you know, that class of tool is a lot more suited for me an end user on my personal laptop and less suited for an application running in a data center. Okay, so why do systems need secrets? That's a great question. <laughs> um, you know, it really comes down to, you know, what is the security posture we want to take uh, within our data centers? And I think, you know, in some sense, there's, there's a reason why we didn't talk about these kinds of systems a few years ago, which was the assumption used to be if I have an app running in my data center, you know, it's running on a private network and that private network is secure. And so, you know, yes, my database needs, you know, a username and password to connect to it, but I'll just use the default, you know, root root uh, for the database and I'll just hard code that in my application to connect the database with root root. And, you know, I think what we've seen increasingly over the last few years is that's a bad assumption. <laughs> uh, the assumption that our network is, you know, somehow perfectly secure. Uh, you know, anytime we open up the news, it's almost like a weekly basis. It's like, you know, what was the latest company to get hacked? And so that's really what's driving this is this sort of mentality shift to say, actually, my network isn't secure. And at some point, there's going to be a bug in my application or my operating system or some piece of middleware that I depend on uh, that's going to get let an attacker get on my network. And so, you know, maybe my database password shouldn't be, you know, root root. So what is secrets management? Yeah, so secret management, that's a great question, is acknowledging, okay, if we have this class of secrets, right, database credentials and API tokens and, and sort of certificates, how do we manage them, right? And when we say management, we really mean kind of a few things, which is how are we distributing that secret to the end application? So I have a web server, it needs to talk to a database, so therefore it needs the username and password of the database. How do I actually get that password to the, to the web server? How do I update that thing? So, you know, a, a sort of good practice in security is, you know, credentials should not last forever. So I don't want my database password to be the same thing till the end of time. So how do I update that, but then make sure my web server actually gets an appropriately updated password so it can connect to the database? And then sort of the flip side is, suppose we do get breached, suppose there is a compromise and an attacker gets on our network or gets to our database, how do we revoke that secret? How do we update it? How do we sort of react uh, if there is a compromise? And so those kind of questions, answering those questions and building a process around that uh, is really what secret management is. So why, why do we need to share the secrets? You said we need to share the secrets between the servers. So imagine we, I've got five web servers which are logging into one single database. Yep. Why do I need to share secrets between those things? Yeah. Why can't I just have five logins? You, you can. You can have five logins. But the question becomes, you know, how does the web server actually get the username and password to connect to the database? And that is sort of the core heart of secret management. So my web server boots, where does it get this? Does it get the username and password just from a configuration file? And if it gets it from a configuration file, you know, how did that secret get there? Did I, you know, did a, did a human operator manually SSH into the machine and populate the username and password for the web server? Or was it driven by, you know, was it just hard coded in plain text? And now if I'm able to access any of the machines, I can just see what the username and password is on disk. Or if that file is stored in, you know, in GitHub in plain text, 
I can just access GitHub and see what the database credentials are. And so in some sense, the, the surface area of access is too wide. Anyone could see these, these credentials. Why is secrets management hard? <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, yeah, that's a great question. Why is it hard? You know, the challenge of it becomes, you know, I think it's even bigger than just secret management. It kind of speaks to the challenge of security, which is, you know, when we're solving many problems, we can think about the problem in kind of this localized way. We can think about, okay, I just care about, you know, this performance problem of one application, right? And I can profile that and understand where the bottleneck is and fix it in this very isolated place. Security has the opposite problem, which is it's incredibly holistic, right? If I'm an attacker who says, I want to break into this company or there's data I want to exfiltrate, I'm not going to figure out, you know, what's the most secure part of that application and let me go attack that. I'm going to say, let me find any weakness in the system and exploit that. And so the mentality flips where all of a sudden it's not about this, how do I identify this very localized problem and fix that? It becomes a holistic understanding of what does my security story look like end to end? Because security flows like water. It finds the path of least resistance. And so the challenge with secret management is how do you think about you know, the life cycle of a secret, let's say a username and password from your database, and the whole life cycle of where does the secret get defined, where does it get stored, who has access to it, how do I distribute that secret to the web servers and the APIs and the humans who need access to it. And thinking about that entire life cycle chain in a way where you say, okay, you know, at no point can the answer be the password is in plain text and it can't be that anyone can access it, right? Because all of a sudden if en at any of those steps that is true, that's where the attacker is going to get to it. It's not going to be within the encrypted part of the system. It's going to be within the plain text part of the system. Okay, so even if I encrypt it on the, if I'm entering it manually via SSH, it's still entered in plain text in the configuration file, for instance. Correct, right. Okay. Are there different categories of secrets? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so like within secrets themselves. I mean, I'm sure, certainly there are secrets that are more sensitive than others. Um, and there's different types of secrets. So, you know, the, a few that we gave an example of might be, you know, username and password versus API token versus SSL credential. But then the question becomes, what do those systems give you access to? You know, so I might have a username and password that gives me read-only access to a database. That, that sort of secret is less sensitive than, you know, the username and password that gives me root access to a system. And so there's different levels of sort of severity, I guess associated with them, and then many different types of secret material. Do they change over time? Ideally. So this is, you know, a big philosophical point for us, uh, is this notion that, you know, historically the way secrets were thought about was purely in the, you know, we need a central place to kind of, you know, in quotes, vault the secrets, where we just need to put the secrets in there, and it's a static username and password, and that username and password never changes, but it's encrypted in this one central place. And then applications that need it can pull it out of the central place and users who need it can pull it out of the central place, but it's not changing. And our view is, you know, it ignores the problem that sure, okay, it's super secure within that central vault, but the moment, you know, Alice or Bob pull it out of the, the system, they're like, ah, it's sort of annoying to have to go to the central thing. I'm just gonna put it on, on my desktop as a, you know, an, a text file that says, you know, here's the database password so I don't have to bother go talk to the vault, or I'm going to write it on a sticky note. And in the case of an application, 
the applications oftentimes do a terrible job, you know, uh, keeping anything secret. Uh, they'll end up logging it out to, to their, their logs, or they'll be connected to New Relic, and New Relic will suck it up as an environment variable, and it's available there. Or, you know, the system will have a traceback, and it prints it as part of the debug screen. It's like, here's the database username and password. And so, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, if you've ever told a secret to a friend, you know, most people do a terrible job keeping a secret, right? It's like before you know it, it kind of proliferates everywhere. Uh, and applications are sort of even worse. <laughs> they tend to leak it everywhere. So this kind of gets to our philosophy of if secrets aren't changing all the time, they're not secret for very long, <laughs> right? Like you have to assume at some point either an application or a human is exposing it to a system that's not properly encrypting it, not properly access controlling it, and it you know, you have to assume it's not, not really privileged. So our view is, how do we actually get to a place where secrets are very ephemeral, right? Think almost like a one-time password type thing, which is like every time I'm logging into a database, it should be a new randomly generated password. Uh, kind of like a 2FA code, right? I should get a new pin every time so that even if I write that pin on a piece of paper or I leak it in a log file, that it's invalid the next time around you try and use it. And so in an ideal world, the secrets should be changing all the time. You said 2FA, just could you clarify what that means? Sorry, two-factor authentication. So like any of, oh. anytime you log in, it sends you like a text message or you use like Google Authenticator. Okay. So does that mean we need to uh, think about secrets which change quickly or secrets that change slowly? Because it seems to me there's, there's different uses, use cases for both. Totally, totally. Um, you know, so one of the things we talk about within Vault is we introduce this idea of a dynamic secret. So... Of course, there's going to be all sorts of static secrets that, you know, I put in the username and password, and that username and password doesn't really change until I manually, you know, change it and come in and update Vault. Could you give an example of that, of the use of something like that? Sure. A perfect example of sort of a static secret might be my, you know, the, the login to my laptop as an example, right? The first time I set it up, I say, you know, username Armand, password 1234, and until such time as I come in and, you know, change my password and update it, it's going to stay static. It's going to be the same thing. Versus, you know, we have this notion of a dynamic secret where every time I request access to a system, the system will generate a new dynamic one for me. So here's an example of it is, you know, I might have a database within my organization, you know, it's my MySQL server. And instead of my, you know, username and password always being the same thing, I go and I talk to Vault and say, hey, I need a, you know, a read-only credential to the MySQL, or I need a, a read-write credential uh, to the MySQL server. Vault then goes back and talks to MySQL and generates a dynamic username and a dynamic password that's specific to that one request and hands it back to me and says, here you go, here's your username and password, and by the way, it's only valid for the next 24 hours. And so 24 hours later, Vault talks to MySQL and deletes that credential. And so in that sort of an interaction, every time I'm talking to the database or every time I request a credential, I get a different one back. And so that I think is sort of that two speed mode where it's like, yeah, there's a set of static, you know, very slow changing things, things like my personal login to my laptop. But how do we move away from, from that model uh, to one where, you know, per request or per 24 hours, it's a different secret. Another example of a secret which doesn't change particularly rapidly would be something like a backup. So if you're encrypting your backups, right. you wouldn't want to change that secret very often, I would imagine. Right, yeah, that's a great example. And something you might want to do with a backup is maybe you're sharing the same, let's call it, you know, you, you assign a password that's encrypting the backup, 
that password you know, might be actually protecting a different set of encryption keys each time. So every day when the backup takes place, how do I, instead of sharing maybe the same encryption key every single day, can each backup be encrypted with a different key? Uh, and then that the underlying encryption key could be protected by one the same password, right? So this is kind of like a one password or key pass type thing, which is, you know, I, I only have to remember that kind of one password, uh, but it's being encrypted with sort of a different set of values each time. And that way, okay, so you generate a key. Exactly, exactly. Okay, using a pass. Okay, that's fine. How does an application get hold of a secret in a secrets management system? <laughs> That's a great, great question. And that is, I think, in some sense, the crux of the challenge. Um, you know, it's this problem called, you know, it's, it's sort of the secret zero problem or the bootstrapping problem, which is, I'm a web server, I just boot up. How do I now get access to, to the secrets I need? How do I prove that I'm a web server? And so that, you know, you'll see that referred to by a few different names, which is, you know, bootstrapping or secret zero uh, or sort of the last mile problem of secret management, which is, the central vault has to find somehow uh, establish trust uh, with the client who's requesting uh, these secrets. So, you know, to pull that back then one level further, effectively, you know, one way to think about it is kind of like a web of trust, right? Which is, you know, think about how a new employee maybe starts at a company, which is you have an existing set of employees who are trusted. They already have, you know, their username and password to log in, and the first day they show up. You know, HR is like, great, you know, welcome to the company, Alice. Your username is Alice, and you know, here's your temporary password, you know, one, two, three, four, five. The first time you're gonna log in, you're gonna be prompted to, to reset it. And so that sort of onboarding flow, you know, the day before Alice was not trusted. She was not a member of the organization, and so she had no access to any of the internal systems. But then upon starting, she was sort of securely introduced to the company, right? They sort of looked at her. ID card, they looked at her you know, letter of employment that said, okay, Alice should be starting, it matches her ID and she looks the same as she looks like in her driver's license, great, here's your username and password, welcome to the company. And you know, that is sort of analogous to what's happening with the applications, which is in some sense you tie into the process of booting that web server, and so when the web server comes in, there's sort of a provisioning process. So maybe you're connecting to Amazon and saying, you know, boot me a new VM. Um, and it should be you know, a web server. And then you know, the way you'll tie that back into these systems is kind of the same way HR does the onboarding, which is they'll be like, great, okay, we know there should be a web server booting. You appear to be a web server and you, know, you look like the VM Amazon said it was gonna boot. You know, welcome to the organization, here's the secrets for, for being a web server. So it's sort of a very similar process. You're kind of extending this web of trust from a set of systems that you trust into this new thing that matches, you know, that looks like something you should be trusting. Imagine that uh, for my web server with five different servers and one single database, I uh, want to introduce a more formal or more secure secrets management system into my product. Given the, given the constraints that we just talked about, I guess we should start with some sort of threat modeling. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. You know, when we talk about the threat modeling around secret management, there's really two classes of threats. Um, one is sort of the, the, the obvious one is sort of external threat. These are people who, people or applications who should have no access at all, right? Uh, they're sort of malicious attackers or outsiders. And the threat model for them is they should have no access to anything ever, <laughs> basically. Um, and then you have the second class, which is actually the much more challenging one, 
which is the insiders, right? So these are people or applications that should have access to the system, but only access to like the relevant subset of information they need. So the web server should have access to, you know, only the credentials it needs to be a web service, whether it's the database password only. Uh, and then you might have an API server that needs access to both the database and let's say an Amazon API token. And so the internal threat is slightly different, which is how do we prove you are who you say you are and that we scope what you have access to only what's relevant for you versus an outsider is much simpler, which is you should just have no access to anything ever. <laughs> so with the, uh, I don't really want to go into threat modeling too deeply, but what sort of threats can good secret management help us with? That's a good question. So what it really comes down to is, you know, when we talk about security, there's kind of three problems really, or three sort of works, workflows we have to think about. One is how do we prevent uh, sort of an attack from happening, prevent a compromise from happening? It's sort of step one, right? And an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And really what that comes down to is saying, let's not, you know, let's try and make things as secure as possible uh, and restrict access to, to kind of a need to know basis. But inevitably breaches happen. No security is perfect, right? No sort of authorization model is perfect. So then the second class of concern becomes, okay, how do I detect it when something goes wrong? So my prevention has failed. Now I need to have a good story around how I detect that a breach has happened and what data was accessed and you know who, what, where, when, and why is sort of the questions we want to be able to answer. And then that last category is how do we mitigate it? Right, so now we've, you know, we tried to prevent it, we failed, we detected it, and we know sort of what is the surface area of access and compromise, and now what do we do about it? And that's the mitigation. And so if we have a good story around this and we do our threat modeling right, then we can answer kind of these three class of questions, which is, okay, have we done everything possible to prevent it and scoped down the access to just need to know? The web server only has access to the one database. The API only has access to the things it needs, so on and so forth. Then from the detection, have we done the proper work in terms of audit logging capability so that if that credential gets leaked and our web server is hacked, we can see you know, what's, what are all the secrets that were accessed that maybe shouldn't have been. Uh, and then sort of the final bit is, do we understand what needs to be done to mitigate this attack? So do we know how we would change the database password? Do we know how we would you know, change out the username and password? Uh, you know, block access to, to future things, so on and so forth, how we want to react. And so if we do a good job with the threat modeling, we have a good answer for all three of these categories. It's not just the, de the secrets that could be stolen as well. It could be sensitive data. Correct. As well. So sensitive data being things like credit card numbers, social, uh, social security numbers, that sort of thing. Exactly. And that's an important distinction we make is between sort of secret data, which is giving you access to things, right? So authorizing or authenticating, uh, and then the sensitive data, which is protected by it. So once you've breached sort of the secret and you have access to, to sort of a credential you shouldn't, that's what's letting you trap into all that sensitive information. So it would be nice to know what that person had access to at the, per at the point where they were uh, the data was compromised. Right, and how long they had access for it and all those kind of good questions. Okay, so what are some of the anti-patterns of secret management? <sighs> how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the, the probably the biggest anti-pattern, um, the biggest anti-pattern I'd say is, you know, probably there's two or three of them. One is, you know, what we refer to as secret sprawl, right? 
And secret sprawl is where secrets are just defined everywhere, right? They're hard-coded in the application, they're in plain text and config files, they're in GitHub, they're sort of littered in our configuration management, they're in Dropbox and a wiki, so on and so forth. There's this sort of extreme decentralization. And actually, I shouldn't even use the, the word extreme. It's, it's, it's so common that you could hardly consider it extreme. And the challenge with something like that is you can't really answer any of the hard questions, which is who had access to the secret, right? You know, when it's in 15 different systems and most of them are globally readable, you know, the answer might be every user at the company, every, you know, application, uh, anyone on the network. And so the answer ends up becoming all uh, to, to every question. And so then you go to the next question, which is like, okay, everyone had access, and now there's been a breach. Well, where did that breach happen? Well, there's no way, there's no audit logs because it's in 15 different systems, right? And the secret never changes. So did they access the secret yesterday or two years ago? Um, and then just decided to wait until today to use it, right? Without that sort of audit trail, it is very hard to reverse back, you know, what happened. And so that's sort of the detection question. And then you get to prevention and say, okay, well, now what do we do about it? Well, <laughs> it's defined in 15 different systems in plain text all over the place. So, you know, there's not much don't, you can do. Don't do that. <laughs> and so that's probably the number one, the number one anti-pattern is probably this decentralization. Uh, so even if we had centralized, even if it was still in plain text, right, and we didn't do access control and we didn't do sort of any of the other good things, but we said, actually, it's only defined in this one place, at least it our answers get slightly better to these other questions, which is, okay, well, we know it must have come from this place. Maybe there's web server logs for that one system that we can access. If we need to change the password, we only have to change it in one place and not 15. And so, you know, it's not a great story, but it's at least a vastly better story than sort of the, the, the sprawl uh, that we normally see. So just before we moved on to this, the, the second couple of anti-patterns, I have a question here. It's, does a good centralized configuration management tool such as Zookeeper or ATCD or console help with secrets management? You know, it, it, it improves the situation. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't say, you know, there's, there's the good, bad, and the ugly. You know, that moves us from maybe the ugly to the bad. <laughs> Where at least now we have that sort of centrality. Uh, but when we look at systems like Zookeeper or etcd or console, you know, none of them are really designed with secrets in mind. So they're not, they're not worried about encrypting of the secrets. They're not worried about sort of fine-grained access control and auditing because they're assuming that they're being used for much less sensitive uh, information. Okay, sorry, just about after that aside, can we go back to the anti-patterns? Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, so if... If sort of the decentralization is is kind of the worst offender, um, probably the the some number two would be keeping things in plain text. You know, even if we move things to being centralized, the problem is still if we're not encrypting these secrets, then it's really still hard to answer some of these questions in a very fine way, right? If if it's in plain text everywhere, then really we've decoupled kind of the once I've given it away or once I've written it to disk or written it to the wire, I don't have a strong assurance of, you know, did it, did it get stored in some other system, right? Versus if we're encrypting all of these secrets, then really only the key holders are the ones who could ever decrypt it, right? 
and those become a much tighter set of people that's much more controlled. And then you're not as worried of, you know, if someone copied out this encrypted value from the database, it's sort of like, oh well, right? Like unless you have the encryption key, it's just a meaningless encrypted value to you. So that's probably like number two is keeping things in plain text in various places. But even with that, you have the key problem again. So if uh, coming back to our, if we're putting the username and password for the database, it, we're encrypting it on the, on the on the web servers, then that means that the web servers have to have the encryption key to be able to decrypt it so it's still on the web servers. Well, ideally, if we're doing sort of secret management, we have a central key holder, right? Uh, so that the web servers are not the sort of all, the, the end point in terms of where the decryption is happening. It's that the central kind of key management solution, the central secret management solution is encrypting its own data uh, and doing the decryption just in time before handing it out to the client. If that makes okay, sense. Okay, so this is uh, what they call a trusted third party. Exactly. So we're sort of trusting the central authority, the central key management system uh, to do things properly. But now we move from a place where all of our web servers have these encryption keys to there's one system that we need to secure and lock down, right? Okay, but the web server still has to have access to... Correct. The web server has to be able to go talk and query out of that system. Okay, and the third anti-pattern? Third anti-pattern. Um, I think the third anti-pattern, you know, I think this is going to be kind of a, a, almost a two-part answer. The third part anti-pattern is sharing of credentials and those credentials being long-lived, right? And these things are sort of intertwined. And the reason I mean that is, let's say I have five web servers and all of them are sharing the same username and password forever, right? Because it's, we're not changing them ever. And you know, now we notice that our database is compromised. The question becomes, okay, well, which five of those systems and at what time were they compromised? And this becomes a really hard question to answer because there's a sharing of that same value between all of the different clients and they've been sharing it for a very long time. And so there's not a good way of bounding the space or time in which it was compromised. And so moving away from that and saying, actually, you know, and, and sort of the analogy of that would be, imagine if every employee at a company had the exact same login, <laughs> right? It, you know, it would be very strange from an organizational perspective because we'd, it, it's almost more obvious when it's people. Uh, and you'd say, yeah, obviously, you know, Alice, Bob, and Charlie should have different credentials so that we know who did what. But we don't necessarily think that way when it comes to applications, right? Um, which is strange because they have the same problem. Um, and so I think that sharing becomes sort of that third anti-pattern. So what, what you're saying is, so each of these web servers should have five different usernames and passwords. That's a good thing to do anyway. Right, exactly. Okay. And that they should be forced to rotate as well in the same way you know, we force people in an organization to change their password every some number of you know, months or whatever. Okay. And the long-livedness? So the long-livedness is sort of, so once we've said, okay, actually every web server is gonna have a different password. In some sense, now we've bounded space. So we know if this credential leaked, we know it must be web server five, let's say, that was compromised. But if it's been the same password for five years, we don't know was it compromised last week or five years ago. And so then getting into these shorter-lived credentials lets us you know, bound that time. So if the password changes, you know, every day, then we know, you know, on this day is when the compromise took place as opposed to sometime in the last five years. But you might not necessarily know that the password has changed because uh, the auditing happens at the user level name. 
at the user level. Right, and I think this becomes a value of a good secret management solution is that it should be able to give you that sort of provenance of you know, what was the username and password and at what time so that you can sort of pinpoint that, that sort of you know, where it was in terms of you know, what was the origin of the compromise but what was the rough timeline. Don't let security checks be a burden on your software deployment. Veracode Greenlight gives you secure coding feedback in seconds directly in your IDE. Try Veracode Greenlight for Eclipse free for 30 days and tap into Veracode's binary static analysis engine delivering in-depth and accurate results to developers in just seconds. Request your trial of Greenlight for Eclipse today by visiting veracode.com slash greenlight dash trial. Not using Eclipse? Visit veracode.com slash greenlight for information on Visual Studio and IntelliJ plugins. How do we update a secret? And how often should we do it? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I think it really comes down to sort of this tension between how good we get at secret management, right? So I guess, let me start from sort of the platonic ideal. The platonic ideal would be every single time that I connect to the database, let's just say, it's a different password. Because that is now the ideal scenario. As I can say, I can pinpoint down to this exact interaction when this happened, right? You know, in some sense, that'd be kind of the same as, you know, I'm gonna rekey my house every time I open the door. Every time I, I get into my house, I'm rekeying it and I, now I have a new key. You know, it becomes very impractical, right? And so there's a certain cost and overhead associated with doing this. So the real world trade-off becomes sort of finding that middle ground where you say, okay, maybe rekeying every single time uh, is excessive and extreme. And then it's really about your risk tolerance, right? Do I want to do it daily? Do I want to do it weekly? Do I want to do it monthly? And so there's no perfect answer. Uh, it really comes down to risk tolerance, right? If I was, you know, managing nuclear launch codes, you know, probably my risk tolerance would be incredibly low, uh, and I would, you know, I would make an effort to to get those things, you know, you know. And in fact, they do. They're all one-time passwords, so they're they're quite literally only usable one time <laughs> uh, for that reason. Uh, versus if I'm managing, you know, my pantry, I, you know, I'm probably not putting a lock on it. How should I revoke a secret? Is this the same process? So revoking a secret is super interesting. And I think really comes to, you know, where we're seeing interest in some of the more modern secret management systems. The challenge in the past is if we're living in this world of extreme decentralization, uh, and we really don't think about sort of the challenges in terms of updating, then revocation can be basically impossible, right? So if I have my five web servers and all five of them share a username and password, then you know, if I know that password has now leaked, I can't go to the database and just revoke it because all of a sudden, all five of the servers will get disconnected at the same time. So this sharing is actually causing this problem where you know, if it was a severe enough breach, maybe we're okay with that. We're saying, you know, just take down the whole service until we figure this out, revoke access from everything. But if we really want to be more fine-grained and say, actually, we just want to revoke the credential for this, from the system that we you know, believe to have been compromised, you have to, you know, a prerequisite of that is that you're not doing a sharing and that you have a centrality of management that lets you actually do that. Because if it's hard-coded in the application, you know, there's not an easy way to to recompile the application and, and provide the new credential to it. So how much auditing do we need from our secrets management tool? Ideally, you know, everything, right? Anything going in and out uh, 
would be auditable, right? And I think this goes back to, you know, in the general case, we're not really looking at it, but when that breach happens, we really want to have as much of the forensic information available to us as possible. So who did it? When did they do it? Where did they do it from? You know, all of that information becomes super useful. And so the way we sort of think about it is any request, every request uh, should be audited um, so that you have that full trail. Any request to the secrets management system or any request to the, the database, for instance? Uh, at, at a minimum, for sure, to the secret management system, every request. And then, you know, if you can, you know, it again goes back to this question of, you know, that data starts to become huge after a while, right? And that, there's that similar sort of overhead of if I have every access to my underlying database system, you know, is that a manageable amount of data? And that really ties back to your risk profile, which is like, you know, if it's the nuclear launch codes, probably audit every one of those things and, you know, pay Splunk a little more. <laughs> and this all ties back to the threat modeling as well, because it you have to decide what you want to protect and exactly. which bits. Exactly. And this is, I think, the fun nuance of security is that in some sense, <laughs> and I, you know, I hope I don't seem like I'm trying to dodge these questions, but you know, security is so contextual, unlike something else, where some of these other areas, you know, there is a best practice in terms of how security, you know, service discovery should be done, as an example. There's just like, here's the right way to do it, right? Where security, it's, it's so dependent on, like, what is your risk profile? What is the sort of cost of a mistake? And the right answer changes, basically. Okay. It's, uh, this is kind of an open question. If given the choice between focusing on secrets management or network or application security, where would you draw the line? Ooh, you know, my view is there's sort of an 80-20 rule with everything. So when we look at network security, I think, you know, the, the end-all be-all assumption for a long time was we're going to build this network perimeter uh, and then put, you know, a single front door with and put our firewall and our intrusion detection and sort of all of our security at that one point and assume... And, basically construct an impenetrable network. Uh, and that was the assumption, was that it's this sort of castle and moat uh, way of looking at the world. And the challenge with that assumption becomes, it's like, okay, well, what if, what if they get in, right? What if, you know, let's just play the, the kind of hypothetical. We've invested so much energy on fortifying the wall that the inside of the network is completely soft. And so the moment the attacker is in, it's game over. And so to me, this becomes this, this sort of perfect experiment of like that 80-20 rule, which is, okay, it's worth building that network perimeter for sure and investing to that 80% of sort of the defense. But then assume they're going to get in and don't try and get that to 100%. Instead, look at sort of the next class of protection, which is, okay, if they're in, then what? If your assumption is it's, you know, if when they're in, it's game over, that's a bad answer. And that's where it makes sense to invest in things like secret management and get that to the 80-20% rule. Right, where you say, okay, can we put in the investment and effort so that you know, we get our secret management story to the 80% mark of preventing sort of excessive amount of access to things, having auditing, having a revocation story. And similar with application security is how do we get to sort of 80-20 on all three of these defenses, which are independent defenses, as opposed to let's get one defense to 100% and if it fails, game over. So how has secrets management changed, talking of this, how has secrets management changed with the move to the cloud? So, you know, in some sense, the move to the cloud has been, you know, I think the, the camel that broke the back on uh, the assumption that the network perimeter was secure, right? I think we held on to that assumption, you know, longer than we should have. 
uh, in the physical data center world because a physical data center quite literally has four walls and one door. Uh, and so there was this sort of more convenient analogy to be made. And it sort of ignores the fact that we had VPNs and multiple data centers connected to one another and things like that. But as we move to cloud, it becomes obvious. A cloud is ne nebulous. There is no four walls. There is no front door. And so that whole analogy, that whole way of thinking just starts breaking down. Uh, and it makes much more clear that, okay, while we can sort of put together you know, a, a network perimeter, uh, it's definitely not as sort of robust as what we used to have. Uh, and it forces us to take that assumption that at some point this network will be breached and what should our posture be? How do we bring in secret management and, and not have the inside of the network be completely soft? Okay, so the idea is to, the as you say, in the 80-20 rule for application security, secrets management and network security. Right, exactly. Again. Okay. One of the other hosts, Kim Carter, does a lot of work on security in it. In, in his book, The Holistic Infosec for Web, Web Developers, one of the statistics that he quotes is that 71, uh, for, for healthcare providers, 71% of all attackers were carried out by insiders, some of which were malicious and some of which were inadvertent. How does that change our approach to secrets management? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think sort of perfectly maps back into that sort of challenge of the castle and moat thinking which is, you know, if we only think about the adversary as being an external outsider, then all we have to do is build a really tall wall. But the moment we allow our threat model to include, well, someone on the inside of the wall could be malicious, then it really breaks down. It doesn't matter how tall the wall is on the outside anymore. It really becomes about, okay, how do you give the individuals on the inside enough you know, credentials that they can do their job, right? We can't go to a world where we say, we're not gonna trust anybody and no one has access to anything because otherwise you know, it becomes very hard to do, do our actual work. But if I decide, you know what? I didn't get the raise I wanted. I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm gonna become a malicious actor. How do I make sure that my blast radius is limited to only the things that I actually needed access to to do my job? And I think this perfectly highlights that challenge of perfect security is I might need access to the database to do my normal job. So I can't be in a world where I just don't have access to it. But if I decide to be malicious with that access, that's when we move from prevention to detection. Because at that point, there was no way to prevent that. I needed the access fundamentally to do my job, but I didn't need to maybe exfiltrate the data and you know share it. And so, you know, I think this does this highlights you know that 71% I think is totally accurate, right? You know, external attacks are actually relatively rare compared to the insider attacks, and it highlights that need to to sort of bring secret management in and invest not only in in prevention but also detection and mitigation. So should I be encrypting everything? Yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure, everything should be encrypted. You know, I think uh, so. Even even my database, especially stuff in the database, especially your database. Yeah, I mean, or just the sensitive information in the database. Yeah, I mean, I think it, if it's truly you know non-sensitive information, then then I guess you know it might not be worth that investment. But the, the way we think about it is, you know, how upset are you going to be if this ends up on CNN.com, right? Like if this gets leaked to the internet. Are you going to wish it was encrypted or not, right? And if the answer is like, not really, then okay, maybe you don't need to apply encryption. But if the answer is like, yeah, that would be a bad day for us, then it's probably a good idea. <laughs>
And I think the other, you know, it comes back to that notion, you know, the question you asked, which is how much should I invest in network security versus, you know, network and app and secret management? And having these, you know, what it comes down to is having independent sort of failure domains, right? So if I say I'm only investing in network security and that thing fails, then it's game over, right? Uh, versus if I have these three different layers of defenses, then even if one system fails, I have an opportunity to apply sort of defense in depth with these other systems. Encrypting the database is similar. If I say, you know what, the username and password protecting the database is the end all be all defense, what if someone who's an insider gets access to it? What if an attacker gets access to it? Is it just game over? Versus if, great, now you have access to the data, but all that information you really care about is encrypted, this sort of second factor, this defense in depth becomes, are you a key holder, right? Or are you authorized to go talk to you know, a key holding system to do decryption of that data? Because if not, now you have this totally independent second factor that also has to be breached. Okay, I'd like to move on to uh, what some of the systems that are available for secrets management. We've already mentioned uh, Vault, but if I go through, if I look up on the internet systems for secrets management, there are uh, a multitude. There are encrypted data bags in Chef, Chef Vault, Hira IAM, HashiCorp Vault, Kawiz, and that's just ignoring the ones which are paid solutions. If I assume that I've decided I don't want to roll my own, Secrets management. <laughs> Good assumption. <laughs> <laughs> How do I go about choosing a secrets management tool? That's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be upfront that clearly there's going to be some vendor bias here, right? <laughs> so to just in, in the interest of transparency. But, you know, I think it comes down to understanding, you know, a few things, which is like, what's your environment look like, right? And what are your, what are sort of the, what are your needs from a secret management system? Right, and I think it's kind of you know it, if you need the Camry, you know, getting the Ferrari might be overkill. And I think part of the challenge becomes these different systems are oftentimes built assuming a, a very particular environment, right? Uh, and so you know, let's just take uh, Kiwis as as an example. It was a internal project at Square that was spun out. Well, the result of that is it makes a lot of assumptions about what the environment looks like that are perfectly valid for Square because it was built for their environment. And so it solves Square's problems in Square's environment. And so if your problem looks the same and your environment looks similar enough, it might be a great solution for you. It might be a great fit. Versus if you, know, you look at a tool like HashiCorp Vault, you know, we are a toolsmith, right? So you know, in some sense, we're not building it for ourselves; we're building it for other people. And so our, our sort of view going in is, how do we minimize the assumptions about what the environment looks like and support the broadest array of environments? And how do we support everyone from, you know, hey, it's a two-person side project all the way to, you know, we have Fortune 20 customers. And so, you know, what our goals are are not necessarily the same goals as, you know, Kiwis uh, in terms of supporting Square's needs. So how do I, how do I go about authentic, uh, authenticating myself with Vault? That's a great question. And that goes to that that sort of secure bootstrap. The sort of heart of that question, it, it's tied very intimately to how you actually provision and deploy applications. So what I mean by that is, let's say I'm using you know, Amazon and I'm booting you know, a VM in Amazon, Vault ties in and treats Amazon as a trusted third party. So you know, the sort of analogy to be made is, when I started at the company, they trusted you know, the federal government to issue me a driver's license that says, this is Armand. Uh, and that's being used by HR to say, you know, this, you know, yes, you can join the organization. 
And in a similar case, you know, when a VM boots and connects to Vault and says, I'm the web server, you know, we're looking at the identity document provided by Amazon that says, this machine set is what it, who it says it is. Uh, and we're saying, great, we trust Amazon to have sort of done the cryptographic identity correctly, you're allowed in. And so the question becomes sort of, you know, based on the platform you're running on, can we establish a chain of trust between our system Vault and the client that's coming in? And so, you know, we work closely with Amazon and Google and Microsoft uh, and, and so on, uh, all the major kind of cloud platforms to do that that sort of integration with them. Okay, so, but that that's something you've got to think about with virtually any secrets management tool. Uh, how do you integrate with the environment with AWS, right, for instance? Exactly. You have to establish that sort of a chain of trust between your secret management system and the application. And so that almost invariably there's some intermediary there. Um, and so it really becomes a question of does the tool integrate uh, in, into that, into the system that you're using, the environment that you're using. So this could be uh, analogous to Puppet. So when the Puppet client first connects to the Puppet server, the Puppet server then has to say, yes, I believe this Puppet client. Exactly. Identical problem. Okay. Is it worth using Volta and indeed any secrets management on a single machine if we're not sharing the keys between multi-sheets? That's an interesting question. I mean, you know, the reality might be no. It might be that it's actually not worth it. And, you know, so let me sort of ground that just so that <laughs> this doesn't get quoted out of context. I'm making a series of assumptions here, which is if our whole application runs on one machine, what is the risk profile here? Right? And how big is the team that's managing this thing? Right? And is it worth the cognitive overhead of learning a secret management system, deploying it, operating it, if our risk profile is a single machine? And so I'm making a number of assumptions in terms of you know, you know, how sensitive this application is and how big the team is. But you know, very likely, if it's only one machine, it's maybe a very, very small team, and the risk profile is, is relatively limited, and it might not justify that investment. Um, if it so happens that that machine is securing, you know, millions of dollars in transactions, then yeah, surely the risk profile is, is, is high enough that it's worth it. But it's a, it's a very nuanced answer. A very inter interesting answer. There's, there's another use case here is that you are creating software which is deployed on a client site. Which is a single machine. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So in that sort of an environment, I wouldn't think about it as a single machine unless there's only one client. If there's many different client sites that are all being sort of centrally managed and provisioned, then really at that central point is where you have the opportunity to say, actually, these hundred client sites that have independent credentials can be centrally managed and, and reduces the, the surface area of, of access and risk. Okay. So to recap, when people are starting to think about secrets management in, in the large like this, what, what are the first three things that they should do? First three things they should do. Okay. So the first three things I would, I would do is kind of get, get a handle on a few different questions. Question one is, what are all of our secrets and where are they? That's question one. Question two would be, you know, which applications and which people should have access to what secrets, right? So figuring out, you know, in some sense, what is our trust model here? Who needs access to what? Uh, and then question three is, 
you know, what's the simplest path of getting all of those secrets to one place and making sure that that access model that we just defined in sort of question two is what's enforced. Like that to me would be the three steps, right? Because I think step one is surprisingly hard because most organizations are coming from a place of decentralization. It actually becomes a whole process of discovery to understand where are all these things defined? Are they hard-coded in the app or in GitHub or where are they? Um, and so having that map of here's where everything is, here's who should have access to, to all of it, and then you know, how do we actually get there? What's the path to, to centralizing and enforcing that access? And should we be thinking about the, the three th kinds of threats that you're talking about, the prevention of compromise, detection of compromise, and mitigation of compromise? Totally. And I think, I think again, that follows sort of the 80-20 rule, which is prevention is in some sense 80% of it. 80% of the value is the prevention. Um, and so if it, you're starting from a place of key sprawl and you know, a, kind of a, the assumption that these things are plain text everywhere, you're going to get the most bang from the buck from just getting the, the prevention in place. Uh, and then you know, the follow-on to that becomes sort of the next highest value becomes, you know, let's set up the audit logging capability and, and have the ability to do the, the detection and forensics that we need. Uh, and then sort of the final level of maturity would be, let's have a well-defined sort of mitigation strategy in place. But I think in terms of that 80-20, 80% of the value is in getting the prevention going and just enabling basic audit logging. Is there anything else I should have asked you? You know, I think one thing that we like to talk about is, you know, secret management in some sense is, it's a spectrum, right? It's not just a binary. So it's, you know, in terms of the maturity curve of like where you could be on it, I'd be happy to chat a little bit about, okay, even if we implement this sort of central vaulting, you know, what's next, right? Like, what are the next few steps from there? Because I don't think you're done. <laughs> okay, and how can, how can people find out more about this subject? That's a great question. Yeah, I think it's actually a uh, developing area in many ways. I think, you know, that this assumption shift uh, from sort of the, the soft interior to, to actually securing it is new. So I think there's limited material. I mean, you know, I think we have a, a lot of documentation that we provide around the Vault project. In some sense, that doesn't give you the sort of broader level view of what is the challenge. Uh, you know, I think if you go in, uh, onto YouTube and you search sort of secret management, you'll see a number of good talks given either by folks at HashiCorp or folks at Docker um, and a few other organizations who have talked about what does modern secret management really mean. And I think those are a great starting point because they sort of lay out, here's the forest of challenges. Uh, and let's just kind of understand the landscape before diving into the details. We had a, an SE radio interview with uh, Diego Monica on Docker Security, which was 290, just for anybody who's interested in that. Thank you for joining us today, Armin. Uh, where can people find out more about you? I'm all over the internet as just Armin. It turns out it's a, uh, you know, luckily there's little little name conflict. So I'm on, on Twitter as Armin. I'm on you know, LinkedIn. Uh, you know, you'll find me kind of all about there. I'm on GitHub as well. Okay. This is Matthew Farwell for Software Engineering Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much, Matthew. Don't let security checks be a burden on your software deployment. Veracode Greenlight gives you secure coding feedback in seconds directly in your IDE. Try Veracode Greenlight for Eclipse free for 30 days and tap into Veracode's binary static analysis engine delivering in-depth and accurate results to developers in just seconds. 
Request your trial of Greenlight for Eclipse today by visiting veracode.com slash greenlight dash trial. Not using Eclipse? Visit veracode.com slash greenlight for information on Visual Studio and IntelliJ plugins. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.